Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is William Johnson. William Johnson is former graduate chair and coordinator of undergraduate programs in the Department of English at Michigan State University. He is also editor of Contagion, the Journal of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion, and general editor of Studies in Violence, Mimesis, and Culture, a book series through Michigan State University Press. We talked about his work spreading the ideas of René Girard, imitation, mimesis in the internet, Girard's radical reinterpretation of the crucifixion, his criticism of Nietzsche's slave morality, his prescience in calling political correctness a new totalitarianism, the limits of imitated desire, and the paradox of differentiation. Agora Politics is dedicated to upgrading our outdated theories of politics. Doing so requires honest and forthright engagement with not only academics, entrepreneurs, and intellectuals, but luminaries of all types who are tuning into the zeitgeist and attempting to synthesize stories of the past with knowledge of the present and visions of the future. With that being said, I give you my conversation with William Johnson. Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Professor William Johnson. William Johnson is editor of Contagion, the journal on the, of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion, published at MSU Press. He is also general editor for a book series, Studies in Violence, Mises, and Culture. William, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I I really appreciate it. And um, one of the interesting things that uh, many of the listeners probably don't know is that uh, you and I were introduced to one another while I was a student at Michigan State. Uh, I actually took one of your classes, which was not entirely related to Rene Girard, uh, Mm -hmm. which was your uh, Irish literature course. Uh, And uh, this was, I believe, in uh, spring of 2019 that that I took this course with you. Um, and it was interesting to me uh, to find out that you were the editor of Contagion because at the time I was super interested in Gerard, but I hadn't really found anybody that uh, really embraced his ideas. And so to have somebody locally who was um, that involved um, with those kinds of studies was, uh, was super interesting to me. And I, I, I wish I would have been able to uh, uh, bring it up with you more often while I was a student. Um, so I'll, I'll just use that, I guess, to, to get into my first question for you, which is um, what first captured you or fascinated you about the ideas of, of Rene Girard? Okay. Um, this was a long time ago. So this is the early 70s. I'd come mm-hmm. out of grad school and uh, I was uh, absolutely uh, immersed in uh, theories of Northrop Fry, Canadian uh, literature professor. And he had given a whole scheme for the structure of literature, not just high literature, but all literature. And uh, I was absolutely certain that it was correct and usable. Uh, But he never explained uh, certain, let's say, motivations. So one one part of his theory was uh, just a a, a historical element in his theory, which was 
uh, if you pay attention to heroes in literature, going from classical to the modern world, their power keeps decreasing until you have bottom dogs like Leopold Bloom and other characters who can hardly do anything at all that seem to have less power than we do. So he described that, but he didn't explain why. <laughs> why is that happening? <laughs> and so, uh, I, you know, I'm sort of uh, working with that. And then, then I met Gerard and uh, a total accident. He came to campus and I read a little bit of his because a, a former student of his was in the uh, Romance languages, Michael Coppish. And I was just stunned by what he had to offer. So this was 1973, just after he'd published uh, in French, uh, Violence in the Sacred, Philosophie le Sacré. And there was the answer. I mean, he had the explanation to me for the motive of, uh, you know, why heroes were, were and, and once I started reading him, I could see there were other authors talking about the same thing. Uh, Gianni Vattimo, the uh, Italian theologian, uh, 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 pensiero debole, the weakening of thought. And so there were others who had, could explain this, but he was the first. And I was at a party at Coppish's house and a very genial man. Uh, I had talked to somebody in our department who had been uh, a, uh, as Gerard had been on his doctoral committee in the 50s. And he says, look out for this guy. He's terrible. He's really mean and so on. <laughs> he was the most genial man in the world. So he was standing there. We were in a circle around him talking to him. We were just laughing hilariously. And he had a bowl of grapes because Michael had come around offering us grapes. And he would say something, which would just make my head explode, just rock back and then hand out grapes, you know. And uh, that, <laughs> that was influential on me. So for the first part, I was just... Um, applying him to the fields I was already interested in, uh, Irish literature, English literature, and so on. How, how would I read literature with Gerard's ideas? So mm. that, that went, you know, all the, all the way to, uh, to the 90s, really. And somebody sent me a note and said, you know, there's this Gerard group. Um, you know, why, why don't you cover? You know, why don't you come over? So it, it's not like I wasn't in contact with Gerard, but he was just this uh, source of ideas. So I, when I wrote something, I would send it to him and so on. And I, I did publish an article on Flaubert and a journal he was editing at the time. But I found this cover group. And I think for me, I found my audience. So, you know, what I'd been, I had been addressing up until then, specialists in Irish studies or specialists in English studies on Wolf or Joyce or Yates or something. And, uh, no, I had a big enough audience and it helped me write a book just to imagine concretely there were people out there listening to what I had to say. So, so that's how I got interested. In it. And then being an editor was also an accident. Um, a man who was a better editor than I was, Andrew McKenna, uh, was doing it all himself at uh, Loyola and he just he was worn out. Now I understand that, but I didn't then. And I kept trying to um, get him to do it. And uh, more, do it for a few more years. He said, I'm done. And so at our board meeting, it came to me. And so that's, that's where I am now. That's been since 2005, something like that. And then I added the book series later to the journal. Mm -hmm. well, that, that's a long enough answer. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So at the time when you were first introduced to Rene Girard himself in the 70s, did was, was the comprehensive theory of mimesis uh, well-developed in those earlier works uh, with, with violence in the sacred, as you had mentioned? 
Um, when when he arrived, uh, I think this, the most obvious or public side of his work was um, uh, imitation, really. That uh, I think he came to this also also by accident. You know, he was uh, a grad student. He came after the war. Um, he came to America for all kinds of reasons to Indiana University and was a grad student in French. And uh, they assigned him to teach certain great novels, and that was not his field at all. And he mentions that two or three of them he'd never read. And I think he found the the unity of those great works. And so that's where the first book, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, comes from. So that's basically what he was bringing with when he came to MSU in 1973. Uh, very quickly, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel was about how, despite characters thinking romantically that they decide what they want and they're autonomous, they're not. And the great novelists recognize that we are not autonomous, that we copy, we, among other things, we copy our desires from others. So at the time that Girard arrived on campus, that was in the bag and everybody knew that. And it was a very well-regarded book. But he came to talk about uh, the plague in literature. And so I think we're we're... This is the ground he had already covered, but it was the first time for us. How do you take those ideas of imitation into a more um, um, interesting ideas of social social movements and so on? So if people copy each other all at once, you, know, you can end up with a kind of frenzy <laughs> where, where it's, a, it's a mob, mob action. And so what he was, what he was trying to do when in, in the paper that he read to us was... Uh, to, to talk about how um, literature studies these frenzies. And once again, certain great writers understand that plagues are essentially um, uh, human calamities. And that goes all the way forward to his last book, the book on Clausewitz, uh, Battling to the End, where uh, the, the pro, you know, at this time he's identified as a Catholic, mm. openly, publicly as a Catholic, that. Uh, the prophecies uh, against the deluge, you know, uh, coming at the end. These are descriptions of what humans will do to them to themselves. So that's that's about at the point where it was that that we were getting this. I hadn't read La Violence yet. Uh, uh, we were we were getting where where you would take these ideas. Mm. So as I would yeah. say that's what it was. He was a, a theorist of the novelist, very interesting French from Hopkins and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so at some point there tends to be this uh, this transition, uh, at least in the way that Gerard's thought is received, where it's taken from the realm of uh, of literary analysis and yeah. brought out into the world as sort of a grand theory of yeah. of mimesis. And I think one of the uh, one of the changes in society that's playing a role in sort of the resurgent interest in Girard that has happened uh, within the last decade or so is the role of the internet. The internet seems to me to be a kind of special infrastructure that accelerates or intensifies the, uh, the effects of mimetic contagion uh, in a way that has never been possible in human history before. The way, the way in which ideas can spread among groups of people, uh, even people that don't know one another and are unrelated. It used to be that ideas had to spread, you know, either locally or perhaps through a text, uh, maybe over the radio, 
for the 20th century, but that was about it. There wasn't a whole lot of other ways uh, where, for things to spread. And now they spread, uh, they spread as memes through the internet. Um, but this creates a whole new domain, uh, a sort of meta domain in which we can continue to have this kind of imitative behavior, this cascade of uh, imitating uh, events. Um, do you have you personally as as uh, as editor of Contagion or just in general with your public presence, have you noticed a kind of uh, renewed interest in Girardian ideas? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I intended. So mm. I have to be careful about the observation because uh, that's what I decided uh, I wanted to do, mm. um, you know, beyond beyond just skiving off his ideas for my own work. And it was a big change for me to instead be absolutely committed to getting him uh, a wider audience. And it's tricky <laughs> the way it works. The, the, uh, I think you're right. I think the internet is, is fascinating. And when, when Gerard finally started talking about contemporary events, he said things are getting better and worse at the same time. <laughs> you know, that uh, over time, we invented really the social institution of hospitals. I mean, hospitals, really. So, I mean, there's that. Always going forward, taking better and better care of people and also destroying them with more efficiency. And so mm. the internet is right at the center of that. And it's one of the, uh, uh, I mean, it is the medium for me seeing how far Girard has uh, spread. So I, I, I see copies of articles, you know, like on this, these various subscription services. Lots of people just writing about Girard. And I was also, I, I still am, I suppose, a member of Imitatio. And that was that's another part of my life where the scheme was, again, to, to get Gerard a wider audience, to get more people to read his work. And as an academic, uh, I knew very little about how to spread ideas, except this one idea, which, which is part of the, the journal and the book series, get to the teachers. You know, get to the teachers because they have the audience. And if you can convince them that uh, mimetic theory helps them understand their own discipline better, that will take place in the, in the classroom. So I think we've been successful there. And the wider spread, uh, um, Cynthia Haven's biography has been, been uh, a big deal for spreading mimetic theory. And that's a, that's a complex subject. She is not an academic. So I regard her as a, as a grace, you know, as a, an unforeseen benefit. But she had, she had written about Gerard. Renee told me she's the mm. only one who ever got him into a major newspaper in America. <laughs> and mm. so uh, I had talked to her and said, you should write a popular book about Gerard because we'd like that. In. And uh, she, has, she has written several other books. She's, uh, there's, there's hardly a... Uh, 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 a proper term for her. I suppose you call her a woman of letters. That sounds kind of strange in America, but she's not. She has some connections to Stanford, but basically she's an independent writer. And she got us uh, attention in places that we never had, that even places I've been trying hard to get into. So she was reviewed in the TLS and so on. And and she sold a lot of books and got a lot of interest in Gerard by by telling a human story, a human version of uh, Gerard's career. Mm -hmm. So, so yes, the internet is really important. Um, it's, you know, it's the better, it's the worst and the best of us. 
Uh, just this morning, I was reading in the, in the newspaper that uh, the minority, the, the 200 million Muslim minority in India, so what the hell, <laughs> 200 million? <laughs> so, you know, you just go to the internet and say, well, you know, this year, how many people are in India? And the population is just, <laughs> no, it, it, it gave me a, more than a brush of modesty to know exactly how big India is. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, and the, and the internet is a, is a place where people write stuff for you. They don't ever get credit for it. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, it's a, uh, I wish I knew better how to use it, but it is, certainly it's important. Yeah, well, one of the other interesting things about doing work on the internet, such as what we're the conversation that we're having right now, is that mm -hmm. a lot of those people who you described, not only in India, but also elsewhere, are not even on the internet yet, or they're barely on it. And so anything that you put out there, whether that's writing or speech or anything else, uh, is you know inevitably going to be discovered by potentially, uh, you know, millions of, uh, of humans, or maybe even billions sometime in the future, uh, okay. who aren't even, you know, in, involved in the kind of processes that we're, we're, we're engaging in right now. Um, mm -hmm. It's all going to be out there, and, and eventually, uh, they may find it. So that's, that's another interesting, interesting thing yeah. to think about, and yeah. kind of yeah. makes you reflect on what kind of impact you're having with regard to, you know, imitation in terms of what ideas are you spreading? Uh, what kind of behaviors are you encouraging? How might how might those end up being used in uh, causing unintended consequences later on down the road? Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, Gerard's reading of the New Testament. Um, so he makes this separation, uh, or not really a separation, but a distinction between myth and the Bible. Oh. And specifically, uh, Gerard says that the Bible is sort of a decoding of myth um, yeah. and things hidden since the foundation of the world. Uh, basically, there is this idea that there that at the heart of society, there is always a, a crime. There's a crime that's at the basis of every mm -hmm. society. If you look at the founding of Rome, uh, people are doing this right now with the founding of the United States. They're sort of making a big deal out of, uh, let's say, uncovering the original sin right, of the foundation. And uh, Gerard says that this is a very dangerous thing to do, to take the founding uh, crime and expose it to the elements. Uh, he praises Plato, for example, uh, in his Republic for, for making note of this, for, of the not only the relevance of the founding crime, but also the fact that it must be kept a secret. Um, so... What for Gerard is different about Christianity specifically in terms of its contrast to, uh, let's say, all myth, at least in the Western canon, that it had existed prior? Well, that's a good question. And his answers were different uh, depending on uh, what years or phases you pick him up. So uh, the, the, the book where that gets laid out, De Chose Caché, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, that's in, published in France in 1978, huge response. Uh, that, that book was originally meant to be part of uh, Violence and the Sacred. It was supposed to be the second part, but his explanation is it was taking a long time to write 
and he felt he had already been a long time since he published uh, the, the first book. And so he put it out there. And uh, for him, the violence in the sacred was, was misread, often misread as an expose of religion. You know, that Gerard had shown the uh, human origin of religion. And this was very great for skeptics and agnostics. Uh, and so in the first phase, Gerard is battling against that own that, that misinterpretation of his own work. So he says very strongly, Christianity is the unique revelation of myth, that it turns myth upside down. So if you're reading about uh, Oedipus, we all agree Oedipus is guilty. <laughs> you know, and audiences wonder why, you know, why is it taking him so long to understand what everybody else already knows, that he killed his father and married his mother. And for Gerard, it's in uh, uh, in the Bible that these the accused are recognized as innocent of the crimes they're accused of in myth. And so Joseph in Egypt did not want to kill his father and marry his mother, you know, the the, uh, the husband and wife that he's working for and so on. So in the first part, it's, it's uh, fundamental and radical that the stories in the Bible expose uh, victimization and they are the unique source that, uh, and they are, they are a, a, uh, a full break with all other religions and myths. And after 1978, uh, Gerard, of course, gets a lot more attention from theologians and so on. Raymond Schwager, for example, there's a book of uh, uh, letters back and forth between them. A very, very interesting man, a wonderful man, really, Schwager. And what this this brought uh, Gerard to to uh, maybe refine or alter or modify his ideas. Uh, and and uh, what he started doing was looking looking at other religions uh, as well. And so the one culmination of this uh, look at other religions is uh, is the the uh, uh, the book on sacrifice. We published that as a very small book. A series of lectures were given, I think, in 2001, 2002, the Bibliothèque Nationale on the Vedas. And he says, that, you know, the Veda means knowledge. <laughs> and, they, and they also tell the truth of sacrifice. They're all about sacrifice, how, how it is the uh, core of culture. So it's not that polarization is not as raw as the one he begins with in 1978. And so finally, in the, in the years of, uh, of the Clausewitz book, he says, uh, all religion is religion. <laughs> all religion is this human yearning to to uh, find their way back or understand or feel closer to uh, some superior something which is which is not themselves and so the idea is everybody wants peace that's so sad everybody wants peace and that's why they're violent because <laughs> there are all these other people who, who are being violent and interrupting your peace. So that mm -hmm. goes back even to the scapegoat mechanism, that the reason people are in a frenzy is terrible things are happening to them, and they, they want to find the cause. And, you know, the kind of mob moving around until it finds the cause. And, and if you're going to be more uh, temperate or accurate about this, you have to say, Many, whatever you call them, groups or gangs or hunting groups, or whatever, they would have disappeared because they didn't find it. You know, they would end up just killing each other off. And, and uh, it's only the rare example where they find they, they ultimately agree on some 
one person for, for lots of false reasons who's, who can be held responsible. And then they're at peace because they agree with each other. They found the, found the person. So uh, that's the myth. That's the, the basis of all these different myths that uh, uh, Gerard says that the New Testament exposes. And there's also been discussions back and forth between uh, um, people who, who uh, study what, what Gerard calls the Hebrew scriptures to say, you know, most of this is already there in the Old Testament. And, uh, and so it, it's, a, it's a process of moderation or modification on Gerard's part without ever giving up finally the idea that uh, Christianity has a unique role to play in uh, reconciling with victims, recognizing victimization, but it's a hard path. No. Yes, and I want to talk a little bit more in depth about the scapegoat mechanism. Um, okay. One of the things that's interesting that Gerard says about the scapegoat is that it's uh, it's essential that the scapegoat is not recognized to be innocent by right. the society that is persecuting right. him. So even though we can read a story and see plainly, oh, there, this is a scapegoat. This this uh, this character is innocent. Um, yeah. You know, whatever it may be, the the essential cleansing function that they serve for the community in terms of, you know, bringing peace through violence um, is predicated on the notion that they are guilty, at least to those who are involved in in the violent act uh, to the mob. Um, And this is, uh, well, so so one of the things that Gerard said is that, uh, you know, we didn't, uh, what does he say? He said, we didn't, Oh yeah, we didn't stop burning witches because we invented science. He says that we invented science because we stopped burning witches. Yeah, yeah I love uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> which is which goes back to your point that you made uh, a little bit ago about uh, how these tribes would sort of you know continue to kill one another off. Um, and I guess the way that this would play out, if you're thinking about a hypothetical scenario, is you know they're sort of mad because let's say there's a drought, they don't know who's to blame for the drought. Um, they go decide and that they're going, they're going to kill, they're going to sacrifice someone, uh, who's, who's causing the drought, let's say an evil witch who's causing the drought that they think is doing it. It's some, you know, it's some poor woman who, you know, lives at the edge of the village or something. Um, so they go kill, they go kill this scapegoat and, uh, let's say that it doesn't work or no, let's say that it does work. It does work. Well, if it does work and, uh, you know, a day later or something after they uh, murder this person, uh, they finally get rain. Well, then they can continue going on and thinking that this sacrifice worked and they're likely to go ahead and do that the next time. Uh, the next time a similar situation happens because they're getting the chain of causality wrong. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas uh, I guess if we take Gerard, uh, Gerard saying there and apply it to the situation, what would happen is they go, they sacrifice a scapegoat and then they discover that it doesn't actually cause rain. And then they are stuck with the problem of, well, how do we actually begin to figure out the real cause of this rain? Now, I guess you could just sort of keep going on in a killing frenzy and finding new scapegoats mm-hmm. who might be causing the, the drought. Um, but eventually, yeah, you, you do run out of people. And so um, he talks about uh, giving 
ironically enough, a non-sacrificial reading of Christianity, mm -hmm. uh, which I guess became kind of a confusing term, which he later revert he re later reverted back into using the term sacrifice itself mm -hmm. because this whole non-sacrificial reading component uh, yeah. wasn't really serving him. Uh, but in in that he he mm -hmm. meant that he had an interpretation of the passion, the passion of the Christ of Jesus Christ, uh, which differed in some respects from many theologians uh, at yeah. the time, specifically yeah. in foundations yeah. hidden since uh, since the be the beginning of the world. And um, yeah. that interpretation is uh, essentially rather than Jesus being held um, as a uh, given up as a kind of ransom to God, yeah, right. which is a very common interpretation. Uh, yeah. You know, they say, look, he died. He died for our sins. God demanded the ultimate sacrifice. This is kind of the language that it's talked yeah. about in. Um, rather than that, it was really to show us. It was, it was to show us, us, not, not, not God. It was to show us the absurdity or the atrocity that we were committing uh, to one another to God's creation through the destruction of the most innocent. Uh, is that a correct interpretation of what he means by a non-sacrificial sacrificial reading of Christianity? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he, he was always very polemical. Uh, there are early videos uh, on the internet of him, and mostly on French. You see his chin out. He's eager to get into to an argument. And so so the, uh, the, the first, uh, like uh, in 1978, things hidden, it's very polemical, very anti-sacrificial. And so the subsequent dialogue with, uh, in particular with Schwager, that's who he credits for making him see that he, that he had to use the word sacrifice for positive gestures. And so he was, he, that you, you, have, you have that reading right, that uh, what, what the uh, crucifixion shows is uh, in, in Gerard's argument, this this has nothing to do with a God who needs to be consoled by uh, misbehavior. This has everything to do with us. This is uh, how um, how uh, how a mob violence uh, works and its culmination. But what Schwager convinced him of is that there is this long tradition of talking about uh, Jesus's um, crucifixion as a sacrifice, as an offering. You know, and, and the, it's tricky in other languages. So uh, opfer, and you know, in German is uh, um, is the word for sacrifice for offering, and Scandinavian opfer, and, and so like that. So this this investment already in the word sacrifice that uh, he was simply um, maybe you'd say unnecessarily uh, pushing uh, readers or, or or people away from. The, the the real insight that he was offering that that uh, um, I mean in one way it's really simple we can't believe we did it <laughs> you know if you see some spot on your shirt you look to the person next to you and say look you got ketchup all over my shirt here I mean we cannot believe we did it and I think mm -hmm. more than anything that's the motive behind uh, mob violence and sacrifice it can't be us it's got to be somebody else. We got to find out who did this, and so the the, um, the reconciliation with uh, with some theologians is uh, has to do with that accepting 
the use of the word sacrifice as a positive thing that certain people give themselves up. Uh, heroes, really, consciousness, give themselves up for the sake of others. And it's not masochism, you know, it's mm. not uh, self-punishment. And that's where Gerard's ideas are really helpful because he has a beautiful uh, section on masochism in uh, Deceit, Desire, and Novel early on to, to uh, show it better its motivation. I mean, masochists aren't other people who somehow enjoy pain but they're like everybody else, simply taking a few steps further forward that uh, they fail at getting something. Uh, they fail at uh, pleasing some model or, or getting some object. And so they make a, a kind, of, kind of crucial rational judgment that the only thing worth having finally is under the stone too heavy to lift. <laughs> you know, if the group refuses you, of course, that's the first group to be on. So uh, there's a couple of things there. There's the turn to his willingness to use the word sacrifice. He says, you know, that, that finally uh, it's, it's there and you can't, you can't discard like you're some super linguist. You can't discard a word that has all the wealth of uh, people's positive offerings, offerings to others. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, this is actually, uh, he has sort of a, an ongoing um disagreement with uh like sort of the the uh the formalists uh, of his day uh which is that he you know he asserts that content is actually it actually matters and that words themselves are inherently meaningful they're not really just like pointing to other words they're not mere yeah yeah. uh, Yeah. they're not mere uh you know references um so I want to bring up uh, one story as well that kind of illustrates his, um, I guess, radical takes on Christianity, which were radical at the time, and I think have been digested a little bit more thoroughly in the culture now, but are still um, surprising to many. I do have to uh, preface this by saying that my personal biblical education is very much lacking. uh, And so I do apologize if I get any if I make any mistakes in uh, recalling these stories, one of the stories that Gerard gives as an example of kind of the earliest manifestation of the Christian idea that he's talking about is the story of two prostitutes. Um, And I believe it goes that there are two prostitutes who uh, were uh, in the kingdom of Solomon and uh, uh, they had, they each have a child. One of the child uh, dies. One of the children dies, uh, overnight in their in their crib or whatever and uh they sort of both believe that the other one played a nefarious role in the death of this child and so they go to the king and uh and they both say you know look this uh this evil woman uh killed my child you know in the night and the reason for that is that they want they want to take the the one that's living for their own and uh king solomon says okay fine um you know (laughs) I, I, that, that's fine. If you both want the child, then, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut him in half and then you can each have part of the child, yeah. uh, which is of course, you know, absurd. And it's, it's, it's his purpose to put them into this double bind. Um, mm-hmm. and one of the prostitutes says, fine, go ahead, which, you know, I, I don't know how you could imagine anyone actually saying that, but that's mm-hmm. what she says. And the other one says, no, no, no let her have the child, mm-hmm. right? And Gerard brings this up to demonstrate that uh, similar to the, 
the masochism point that you just made mm-hmm. that this person, this prostitute in this example is willing to give up what's hers. And even more than that, to potentially face retribution uh, if she gets blamed for the murder in order to save the life of the child. And he points to this story as actually like an earlier instantiation of the idea, which is sort of given its ultimate embodiment in Christ. Um, And I wanted to then, I guess... I want to move to another um, another angle on this Christian interpretation, uh, which is that Gerard has this disagreement with Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, and in fact, he's so bold as to claim that Nietzsche made an error. Um, so I will uh, I will elaborate a little bit by what that means and then ask you about it. Uh, Nietzsche contrasts Christianity, the Christian ethos, with the Dionysian, right? And um, in both of these, um, let's say, mythological archetypes, I'm not here asserting that that the Bible is necessarily all myth, but just just for the sake mm-hmm. of, of argument. Um, sure. In both these mythological arguments, uh, there is there is sacrifice made, right? But he says. That Gerard, that is, says that Nietzsche's error was in characterizing Christianity itself as a kind of slave morality, as rule of the, rule by the mob. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, contrary to Nietzsche, he says that it is the Dionysian impulse that is itself the uh, it is the mob violence, not the absence of violence or the uh, the removal of violence, which. Gerard attributes Christianity to being uh, to, to being kind of the central driver for the decline in violence uh, culturally and even superculturally in humanity uh, over generations. But Gerard Gerard says that Nietzsche made this sort of fatal error in his characterization of slave morality as being so closely tied to Christianity because of the fact that he in his day he was more concerned with criticizing the power center of the church, the excesses of the church, what the church had become, the way in which it had become corrupted. And in fact, it is the Dionysian impulse, the sort of will for the lust for blood, for power, for destruction, that is, that is the mob rule. It is not instead the, um, the I don't even want to say peace, because he makes a big deal about uh, the line where where Christ says that he comes to bring a sword, um, and that actually the the peace that he's bringing about will turn, uh, you know, brother against brother and, and and father against son. There is a kind of um, there's a kind of dialectic struggle that goes on throughout hu- throughout uh, humanity to uh, essentially learn the lesson to learn the lesson of Christ over and over and over again. Uh, which is basically the lesson of the scapegoat. Um, what do you think about uh, about Gerard's criticism of Nietzsche here that he got slave morality wrong? Well, you know, it's a it's another example of what I was talking about before is uh, Gerard's polemical bent, and he beautifully turns uh, Nietzsche upside down. He does the same thing with Levi Strauss in uh, in uh, 
uh, violence in the sacred. And it's beautiful <laughs> the way he just turns somebody inside out. Uh, so the, the, uh, the uh, reversing of Nietzsche, I think it's pretty simple that Nietzsche re regards it as a, a criticism of, uh, uh, of the Bible that it recognizes victims and it sides with victims, identifies with victims and for Nietzsche. Yes. According to Girard, this is uh, what a, uh, a, an unsuccessful race, an unsuccessful tribe does. It sees its own experience and others and makes a religion out of it. And said, but he also does say that he, you know, in this paradoxical way that Nietzsche is one of the greatest theologians of the 19th century because he sees this. He sees the connection between uh, the Hebrew scriptures and identification with the victim, as you, as you showed in the, the two prostitutes. I mean, imagine... Imagine, you know, there's, th that story is often called uh, Solomon's wisdom, you know, really excited by his flash, you know, <laughs> and you can almost imagine some some self-satisfied ruler saying, well, I'll show you, I'll get my sword out and I'll cut it in half. And the crowd is going, whoa, <laughs> that's so clever. I mean, this is a very dangerous man to tell that you were lying. He's already got his sword out. <laughs> you know, I mean, never mind being judged guilty. He's got his sword out. Uh, so. Uh, the uh, the quarrel with Nietzsche, um, Nietzsche is a a center of explanatory power, and so I think what you see in in uh, Girard in general going after Freud, going after is wrong, uh, uh, giving a mimetic reading of Freud, giving a mimetic reading of Levi Strauss in uh, Violence in the Sacred that uh, quarreling with Nietzsche is the same thing. But in effect, you're, you know, it would be like the internet, you're after audiences, you're, you're polemically arguing for your ideas to, to supersede or to encapsulate or uh, hijack somebody else's ideas. So it, it, is, it really is a quarrel with Nietzsche, it really does turn Nietzsche upside down. And, um, that's about when you actually look at how much how, how much of Nietzsche Gerard is willing to discuss. It's not very much, you know. Mm. So uh, um, I don't I don't think there's any future in <laughs> in uh, celebrating uh, Dionysus. I mean, mm -hmm. we had Diane Wachowski in our English department. She used to talk about Dionysus all the time, and it was really cool. But that's bad. Bataille, Georges Bataille, you know, in, in France. And there's this crazy, you know, you can't go back to sacrifice. So I think Gerard's analysis of, of Dionysus is uh, as strong as Nietzsche's, and it leads him to say this is not, this is not anything. There's no future in that. There's no future in going back to sacrifice. Uh, in in the Clausewitz book, he goes back to Hoderlin, uh, the the uh, German poet, and and tries to show, and maybe that's his way of sort of indirectly taking on a little bit of Nietzsche that Hoderlin uh, wants to see the other gods as brothers to Jesus, and and uh, Gerard's take on Hoderlin is that he's someone who, in fact, who's understanding. A mimetic, uh, the mimetic, mimetic consequence, social consequences, and sacrifice, and so on, is is uh, superior to Hegel and to Clausewitz, his contemporaries. But it was, <laughs> it was very dangerous to Holderlin, 
you know, the Hodelin eventually recognized how how uh, bedeviled he was by competition with his fellow poets, models, Schelling, and so on, and found that the only way to get out of it was to retire to the tower, just get out of it. And uh, that's a somewhat of a simplification of a complex subject of when people really can't, you know, I mean, as a literature professor, for me, it's Septimus Smith and, and uh, Wolf Smith's Dalloway. You know, when somebody really at the very, you may, they may be at the very edge of their thinking, but they're at the very edge of no longer being able to keep themselves alive. And so, uh, um, so yeah, I think that I, 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 uh, I think there's a life for Nietzsche's work after Girard. <laughs> you know, this is just a one. This is one foothold. You know, you're going up a ladder, and so he. And, and just as there's an, a life after Girard for Freud, mm-hmm. and for Levi Strauss, wonderful, wonderful intelligences open up all kinds of doors. And many of the people who follow Girard, uh, uh, Giuseppe Fornari, who published uh, this massive two-volume work, so he still talks about Freud and Levi Strauss and so on. Uh, so yeah. Gerard is a particular kind of intelligence, uh, a battler. He's he's uh, rarely uh, a, a full-fledged scholar. I think if you know what I mean. But, yeah. So is this his uh, is this his form of imitation then? Of rivalry with the, yes. Yeah. I, yeah. That would that would be um, a something that Gerard recognized in himself. Um, that he's he was, he was in rivalry, I suppose, the French establishment that he left, and who knows what that cost him in uh, France for the, the audience. I mean, the, the reading population in France is so much larger. I'm talking to uh, Benoit Chant, who's uh, an important uh, Girard specialist in France, and who's published many of Girard's books, and he says, "Well, you know, we've never published less than twenty thousand volumes." Wow. 20,000, you know, um, we're, uh, Gerard's best books will probably hit 3,000 for us as sales. And of course, it's a, it's a university press. And mm-hmm. while I, I push to have ads in the TLS and the LRB and so on, nevertheless, it's a university press. University presses do not, in the, in the main, uh, except maybe the top three or four, get books on shelves in bookstores. And so, uh, so yeah, this polemical, I suppose, is part of the part of what happens as as uh, Girard's kind of orphan of French uh, intellectual culture. Uh, you may have read also; he's also one of the uh, initiators of the French invasion in, uh, of uh, academic culture in the '60s. This famous conference at Hopkins that brought in, you know, deconstruction and so on. He's, <laughs> he did that. Is responsible for that. So that's a, you know, that I, certainly I would say people should not close their Nietzsche and open their Girard. <laughs> There's a lot of wonderful stuff in Nietzsche, and he paid, he paid big time for everything that he wrote. And so uh, one should uh, sympathize with him and keep reading him. You know. Yeah, well, it was just interesting to me to hear that critique of Nietzsche because, uh, you know, I'm very familiar with Nietzsche's work. Probably okay. more familiar with Nietzsche than it, yeah, any yeah. of the other people he criticizes, and yeah. uh, that was a for me that would, the Girardian interpretation of Nietzsche was something 
you know, really that I hadn't seen before. I hadn't seen anyone go after him on that level. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean go after him in a negative way. I just mean that, uh, you know, really to, uh, to offer a criticism like that of Nietzsche, you really have to view yourself to be at least somewhat on par, uh, mm-hmm. on par with him. And, and, and very, very, there's very few people that are capable or, or bold enough to, uh, mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. something like that. So mm-hmm. that was, mm-hmm. uh, that was very fascinating to me that he had sort of mm-hmm. taken yeah. that challenge on. I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you Fornari's book on Nietzsche, which is very good. Just a little book that we published. So when we're done, send me in, send me a postal thing on us. Okay? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll, I'll be following. We'll continue the campaign to win your mind. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, that's why I'm having you here is, you know, I want to, uh, there's, there's, there's all this interest in Girard. I mean, I, I, I don't even know if you're aware of how many people are teaching courses on Girard, are doing similar podcasts like this one on Girard. I mean, it's, it's all over the internet um, with no small help from, I, uh, I'd say, Peter Thiel, uh, having been a, you know, a huge um, advocate of Girard and Girardian ideas in his public presences in his speeches in his book as well i think he is someone who actually is part partially responsible for the renewed interest in gerard by by you know mere um uh by the mere presence of his uh of his uh you know renown uh as a public figure so uh that that's definitely playing a role as well um one of the things that i also found interesting about gerard is uh, he seems to have a kind of prescience when, uh, when you're looking back on, uh, on him today. I, I reviewed one of his interviews, which was like a four hour long interview. I believe it was with CBC, um, yeah, the yeah. other night, the other night. And, um, he's talking about the kind of political correctness of his day. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting to me that you mentioned the conference where he sort of, uh, I guess infected the the American continent with with uh which French with with much French theory and intellectualism uh, of high modernism that was popular at the time, um or postmodernism even, uh, yeah. Yeah. because when he's talking about the political correctness of his day, he describes basically uh, two forms of totalitarianism. Uh, the first form he gives of totalitarianism that he recognizes is sort of the um. Well, he gives Nazism, right, which is sort of the canonical, mm-hmm. you know, boogeyman, uh, which is a, um, a a totalitarianism, which in Gerard's interpretation attempted to dispense uh, dispense away with Christianity or prove that they could do um, basically that they could do so much destruction to show that the Christ that the Christian story could not be true. Um, the other form of totalitarianism, which he points to, is the, uh, let's say, creeping, uh, this sort of creeping totalitarianism that's associated with the political correctness that Gerard is talking about in his own time. Um, and he describes it as a super form of Christianity, that is a kind of Christian morality, uh, sorry, a kind of Christianity without Christian morality, in which it is one's victimization which becomes uh, the paramount concern and actually the currency by which you um, sort of go, go about getting what you want in the world. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it was just really, really uh, shocking and also super fascinating for me to hear Gerard talking about this uh, mm-hmm. back when these interviews were recorded, which I think was probably in the 90s. Um, yep. Because if anything, this, uh, this conception of a Christianity without the Christian religion, without the morality behind it, without any kind of path to redemption or forgiveness uh, that he's describing as being um, part and parcel of the political correctness of his day and the um, exaltation of victims and the strongest and most powerful in society, even using their own victimhood or their own claims to victimhood as a, uh, as a, as a cudgel with which to get what they want um, is super prevalent today. Uh, even more so than it would have been uh, when Gerard was talking about it. And so it was just super fascinating to me how prescient he was uh, in describing, in describing that, uh, that phenomenon. Um, do you, uh, do you, do you see that in, in the current culture? Do you see this as a kind of totalitarianism that is kind of a Christianity devoid of the, um, of the structure of Christian morality? This kind of hyper victimization. These, these were the David Cayley interviews, yes. Canada. Yeah, okay. Um, they were horribly edited. <laughs> You're reading the internet one. Our names are wrong, and I can't believe he did that. But nobody looked at it. But anyway, uh, I mean, Gerard is is uh, pointing to a very powerful interpretive tool. First of all, to recognize victimization to recognize uh, mob action. And it seems even as a, a kind of inevitable logic or, a, or a, what he would call a non-deterministic mechanism that um, the last victims would be, the you would accuse the accusers. And so if you take, for example, a um, another one of the stories, I mean, you probably were, almost going to talk about this one, the woman taken in adultery, uh, the story from the Bible. Gerard's take on that is wonderful, but there's so much in it that uh, the, the, uh, a group, uh, Jesus is uh, preaching, I think, and a group comes to him and they've got this woman and they say she's been taken in adultery and the law says we have to stone her. And they ask him, and uh, you know, he he says finally he says, "Let he is w- w- that he among you is without sin, cast the first stone." That's just brilliant because what it shows or what it exposes really is that stone casting uh, identifies your own innocence. <laughs> you know that you have the power to throw it and so on. And the first one is going to throw the stone. What what he suddenly put that person in the position of is saying, "I'm more innocent than everybody else here because I'm the first one to cast the stone." And uh, Gerard also evokes this idea of uh, in in uh, Hebrew culture of you need two people before you do a stoning. You need two people who are accusers. And what that you know shows is that uh, the, once this first stone is thrown, everything else is easier. The second, third, and what they're doing is imitating each other's professions of innocence at the expense of somebody else. Uh, so. Uh, I think it's inevitable that this power that Gerard really makes sense when he says everything's getting better and everything's getting worse at the same time. This powerful recognition, of course, can be misused, uh, if misused is the word, but it could, if if it's out there 
it will be available for all kinds of motivation. So it, uh, if you go back through, sure, it comes from Christianity. I think that's fair to say. It's also uh, uh, evident in other religions and other forms of belief of recognizing victims as victims and uh, recognizing the system of accusation. But uh, if you say um, it's on the loose now, of course it's on the loose in the internet because everything is better and worse on the internet. You have all this knowledge for free and you have all this fake knowledge floating around that's impossible to stop. Mm. So yeah, I think that can be one consequence that, that the, uh, the understanding of victimization can be hijacked for uh, selfish purposes. I mean, if you take, for example, uh, Orwell's 1984, great text, you know, and perhaps uh, the, uh, the, the element of the novel that's less recognized, less talked about, is the appendix. And what the appendix of Orwell's 1984 shows you is that we're looking back at 1984, that the, the present tense <laughs> Sorry. is not 1984, but the future. That's us looking back at the 1984 we think we exceeded. But what it shows is that the, the uh, uh, controllers of Oceana understand all about scapegoating. So they have the two-minute hate movie, and it's the Jew, you know, yes. and he's saying all this ultra-socialist and Jewish things, and everybody's going crazy, and one person throws a book at him like it's a stoning. And so here you have a hypocritical hijacking of the recognition of victimization. And it goes something like other people believe scapegoating. You know, other, you know, we understand scapegoating. We can use it as a political, you know, tool because other people just fall into it. It's all these other people who uh, scapegoat. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, um, you know, it's taking the internet as a little model. All this knowledge and all this power doesn't mean, sad to say, that inevitably, you know, so when Gerard says that recognition of the scapegoat mechanism makes it impossible to scapegoat. Um, maybe that's just a status statement at the moment, you know, you will be released from it. But you're pointing to examples where, um, in effect, accusing other people of being victimizers is, uh, is relished for the opportunity to express your own innocence. You know, so if you go back to the woman taken in adultery, the the latest accusation is to accuse the accusers. And that's mm. you know that's just part of the <laughs> that's part of the package. You know, it doesn't. I don't think it means that. Well, that's an, that's enough to say. I think. Yeah. Well, and and you can take that logic. Uh, you can take it all the way down, right? So it can just go on ad infinitum uh, into a continuous regression of yeah. you know accusing yeah. the accuser and accusing the people. Yeah, it just goes on and on. Which is yeah. the point about Gerard, which is that you there's only one way to end the cycle of violence, uh, which is to decide that you're you're not going to do it anymore. Uh, you're not going to end it with more violence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about a concept that's core in all of what we're talking about: imitation, scapegoating, which is the role of desire in all of this. Uh, yeah. So, Girard sees desire as central to 
human motivation. Uh, and what he means by desire is not simply uh, desire for some object or some money, although he also means that, but, yeah, yeah. but specifically, uh, but, but desire in an abstract sense, and in particular, the kind of social, um, the, the, there's an inherent sociality to desire that, or to desire as Gerard describes it, um, which is that he claims that what we desire is not uh, things in themselves, but actually what we desire is essentially a, a function of what others desire. And so there's a social, medi social mediation that happens with regard to the targets of our desire. And in some sense, it is the, uh, the desire of others, which gives our desire its own mm -hmm. justification or validation. Mm -hmm. um, and so even something as simple as, as mimesis, as imitation, uh, is itself a kind of... Um, desire for emulation or a desire for identification um how do you how do you think about this this central claim that our desires are themselves um for lack of a better term social constructs um it's um Well, you know, the way I think theories go is they keep running till they hit a wall. And so Girard found this uh, wonderful uh, insight into uh, five classic novels and so on and recognized that people desire according to the other. And he just kept pushing it. And eventually, of course, people would ask him, well, if you're only, you know, so that led him to deconstruct, let's say, uh, Freud's model. Freud says that the child is, to use a very vulgar version of Freud, the child is born into the world wanting to uh, uh, marry his mother and uh, kill his father. And as you've heard in Violence and the Sacred says, it never, the child never thinks of any such thing. The child has a model, the father, and the father loves the mother. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so uh, the, um, uh, and the uh, exoneration of the child what still remains intact is imitating the father in order to marry the mother and loving the mother because the father loves her first. And so mothers, for example, <laughs> would, would uh, talk, um, speak antithetically to Gerard. What are you talking? You mean you believe that, you know, the, um, what, what Stephen Dudless and Ulysses calls amor matris, which can mean both the mother's love for you and your love for the mother. They say, these mothers say, you mean that's imitated, you know, and then he backed off and then, then he, you know, he, as any theorist would have to do, there's this area that it doesn't seem to cover where, where uh, desire, love is spontaneous, the, the relation between the mother and the child and the, and, the, and, and the family, you know, and so I've seen him take that position, of course, in the family, there are certain forms of desire, which are not mediated, which are not, not social, they seem to be. You know, like that. I mean, the child, the child is in love with the mother before the child is born. <laughs> That's it. You know. Mm. So um, uh, I think this is now Gerard, but I think uh, when when we 
look at a uh, at another thinker, at a theorist like Girard, he picks up ideas one by one, and and his own description of it is that you know all of this fell in on him at once. It was a whole structure, like a like a like a huge you know uh, boulder that he has to burrow through and and uh, find everything and all the relations in it. But I think by the time of violence in the sacred, he has a bigger subject than desire. That uh, Im imitation can take place in violence, whether or not desire, in the sense he means that a mediated desire is there or not. People can fight over water. They can fight over over uh, you know something that's desperately needed. And the more they fight with each other, the more they will imitate each other, of course. And so the the uh, forensic archaeologists, what they look for when they're studying violence is uh, marks on the forearm, you know, so the, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of marks, a lot of damage on the forearm is probably somebody who's had a certain amount of violence, human violence, probably. So your left arm is up because the right arm <laughs> of your antagonist is coming at you and you block it and so on. So there's certain forms of imitation. Desire wouldn't be the word that you would use in if you were using it in Gerard's sense of imitative desire. So um, if if one wants to say in our world that everything is social, um, I think I think that's fair. That's a that's a strong way to account for most of the things that go on. But Gerard himself, you know, as he as he goes on, he locks together, I think, maybe. Uh, for for whatever reason, to to keep the sense of all of his work in in place, he locks desire into violence. Where um, just uh, just me now, I think there are areas of violence that are not explained by imitative desire, and I think that where this comes clearest is in the Clausewitz book, where Clausewitz talks about. He says war is a duel. It's two it's two people fighting with each other. That's the basis of war. Uh, and that I don't I can't get imitative desire into that where it would come in would be the communities that support the war. And then he talks about that. So hmm. so um, if it is a, it is proper to question Gerard's uh, explanation here and say, does that mean there are no examples of uh, innocent desire or uh, desire that's not imitation or mere imitation? I think that's a legitimate question as Gerard himself uh, backed off in certain cases. Huh. I don't yeah. know if I got your question right or not. No, I, I think that was great. Uh, I, I, I definitely agree. I think it was, my question was kind of trying to lead down that path, which is that there is sort of this, there's a limit, right, that you run into uh, yeah. when you try to describe uh, desire as socially mediated. Um, you know, if I'm in the desert and I want water, I, I don't want water because someone else wants water. I want water because I need water to not die. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and if you fight with somebody else over the water, you're not necessarily going to forget the water, <laughs> which is his, his, you know, explanation of mediated desire that soon the object drops out. And the most important thing is fighting with the other person. And that, that would be be uh, situationally true. You need to kill the other person to get the water, but it's not. Um, something different than metaphysical. So I wanted to then, uh, I, I want to move into um, mimetic rivalry, okay. uh, which, which you mentioned as sort of, uh, at least in the case of the duel potentially being uh, 
not a motivating factor. Although in some sense, the duel is mimetic because um, why am I standing up to shoot you? Well, because if I don't do that, then you're going to shoot me, right? And Mm -hmm. so I want to shoot you because you want to shoot me. If we both agree not to shoot each other, then there is no duel. Um, I think even in that case, it's not quite an exception. Um, uh, That being said, there is this component to um, continually escalating conflict uh, that is mimetic conflict or mimetic rivalry, uh, which has to do with differentiation, uh, which Gerard talks about a a little bit as well, um, which is that, uh, and and he he describes it in terms of the the art movements that that go on, right? And so there, there used to be this old conception that if you wanted to be a great artist, uh, what you should do is you should go and you should imitate the greats, right? You should imitate the, the greatest artists of all time to whom you are aspiring to, to emulate or perhaps even per- surpass. And through this discipline of, um, of imitation, uh, you can gain some insight, which, you know, of your own powers, uh, you simply would not, not be able to achieve. This gets flipped on its head in Gerard's lifetime, where you have the, the, the rise of, of modernist and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, abstract art. Um, and what Gerard says about this, about this shift in arts from imitation to, uh, to prizing originality, right, or authenticity, um, yeah. is that it is itself a kind of um, attempting to escape this uh, this imitation through differentiation, right? So if I make my art ever more abstract and ever less imitative of the art that came before, then yeah. in some sense, I'm, uh, I'm rejecting this frame that I need to go and imitate the greats. I, I'm saying that their stuff is no good and that my stuff is going to be better. But at yeah, the yeah. same time, this continually escalating uh, attempts at differentiation still bring us back to sameness right there's a there's a way in which um it it doesn't quite get us out of the problem um because then of course you're continuing to escalate in that direction now now the imitation is in the form of who can be the most i guess individuated or differentiated um and ironically that that doesn't solve the problem. Like, so if you, if you choose to reject the greats and you're saying, I'm not going, I'm above that. I'm not going to imitate Michelangelo yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. You, you don't quite, uh, at least for Gerard, it, it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually quite get there. There's, there's almost, a, it, it's almost an impossibility to fully differentiate yourself in that way, because then it just becomes a competition. Um, I guess into ever more nothingness, into ever less meaning. Meaning, um, that that was my interpretation of his critique of uh, of the art movements that were popular at his time and that are still sort of playing out. Um, did how do you think about this this concept of differentiation within mimetic rivalry? Are we mimetically competing with one another because? Uh, we're seeking, um, we're, we're, we're seeking ever more differences, but there's sort of a sameness that is kind of inescapable by the nature of our, 
um, let's say comparison. What, what, um, that's a good insight. Uh, Gerard has a wonderful insight into competition. And insofar as art movements are competitive, uh, it's a it's a great insight. There's a book, uh, Pascal by Pascal Casanova, a woman uh, literary historian called The World Republic of Letters, where she sketches out all the uh, a, a separate world created by uh, competition among writers and so on. She never mentions Gerard, and I think she never grasps uh, some of the, the the motives and the consequences of uh, imitation. But I think that's a that's a useful and, and really revelatory. Uh, idea about art movements is they try and stand the previous, which others have said, of course, they stand the previous uh, uh, idols on their heads. Uh, now, the, the, the question about Girard would always be, I think, not question, but, but uh, how do you use him? That if you only follow him, you only get so far because he's already done it. So you can, you can produce a million more examples of how the newest movement stands the previous movement on its head. And this is where uh, I've just been reading again, uh, Giuseppe Fornari, who's, who introduced uh, Girard to Italy really tra through translation and introductions. And he says, he's my master, uh, he is my master, but there's more to it than that. And so uh, Fornari always talks about mediation. So let me, let me think, of, think of an example. James Joyce is my God, <laughs> he is my God, you know? That's how I began, I, it's the first thing I ever did in, in uh, school. Uh, I knew that uh, Ulysses was important. I couldn't make any sense of it. And the first English course I took was a special course in James Joyce. So, so Finnegan's Wake is the is Joyce's last word, and all the languages, you know, pour into Finnegan's Wake. And the suggestion is, uh, if you if you took, for example, Ireland as the center of the universe, and then listen to all, you'd recognize that Irish stories are like all the other stories in the world. And the way English is spoken in Ireland is like all the other languages in the world. I mean, as if a, a complete mastery of everything. So Samuel Beckett, who was hanging around with Joyce in Paris, but now what do, now what do we do? <laughs> what am I going to do? And so Beckett, in effect, turns his, on its head and he said that Joyce is the, is the uh, ultimate in mastery. I'll try failure. <laughs> failure as a model. So on the one hand, from Girard's point of view, there'd be this schematic thing that that uh, Beckett turns Joyce on his head. And there's a wonderful line from one of the Beckett plays, uh, a character talking to himself, fail better, <laughs> fail better. <laughs> I love that line and I, it, it makes me feel really close to Beckett. But then in, in terms of mediation of more than just these opposites uh, becoming like each other, these are forms of insights, not, not dead ends. So if you look back at Joyce from Beckett, maybe what you see that Finnegan's Wake is a failure. It's the failure of language. It's the failure of globalization. These stories are not going to come back together. Once broken, it's like the arrow of time. It's irreversible. Once they're broken, they don't, they don't come back. And, and you know, we're not going to speak proto-Aryan, you know, or whatever. It's, it's the, the language dispersal is like the arrow of time. It's final. And, and, uh, and so uh, as far as it goes, and it goes very far, I think uh, Girard's explanation of how rivalry increases similarity as each rival tries to be different. Um, 
it does not, it does, uh, you, you should not stop at the point of saying that the, the search to do something else in art is um, comic, uh, sort of puppets, you know. Um, Milton, Milton is so cool. <laughs> I mean, Milton looks back at Homer. He looks back at Virgil. He looks back at Dante, and he produces this, <laughs> this incredible poem, Paradise Lost. And it's not puppets, you know, banging heads against each other. Uh, progress is made, intellectual mm. progress, artistic progress. So, so yeah, Gerard is useful. And he certainly, he certainly helps you to decide what is worth reading, because a lot of uh, art movements will just be, for all practical purposes, commercial ventures. So Pascal Casanova's book about how there's an economy of literature would, would fit in here that um, it doesn't mean, be, it, it, because it tries to be different doesn't mean it's good. I would also say because it tries to be different doesn't mean you should uh, uh, reject it by formula, that it can't be anything but the same. Yeah, uh, well, that's interesting too, because you know, it is the case that um, that there is some great art that is commercially successful, right? So commercial, but I feel like maybe perhaps the the key is not to put commercial uh, value or reception as the primary goal. It mm -hmm. sort of has to be a secondary effect of the uh, the greatness of the piece. And of course, there are great artworks literature and otherwise that uh don't achieve commercial success in their own time but then are, are are well received later um those ones are almost too early in a sense um for their for their time um well it's an interesting question for me to consider this this question of differentiation because you know even with my podcast you know like i want to get more listeners i want to grow the audience uh i'm interested in the work that others who are doing similar um, doing similar projects and having similar conversations are doing. And we're all sort of watching one another. Uh, and there are varying levels of success. Uh, I think we all want to be successful. We all want to spread our messages and our ideas. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so how to differentiate properly, how to have like how to recognize what is a real differentiation and what is more more imitation. Uh, is a, an interesting question. You know, to yeah. what extent do you imitate the things that are working for others versus uh, continuing yeah. to to do your own thing? Is is also another uh, another interesting question. There are a million ways that you can sort of slice that up. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it, it's a question that I myself have considered uh, for for quite a long time. You know, whenever you're whenever you're putting together a production, right? Like you, uh, you don't go in blind, you, you go in with your own assumptions and your own knowledge and experience and uh, are just sort of trying to figure out what, what can you make out of this that other people will value. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, all right, Bill. So I've got a few more questions uh, before we run out of time here. Um, one of which is, it seems to me throughout our conversation that you've been hinting at something that I don't think you've said totally out loud, but which <laughs> is this sort of need to um, kind of move beyond Girard, to not, not get trapped inside of one person's uh, mode of thinking. Um, I, I interviewed uh, an author, uh, John David Ebert, a while back, 
who uh, told me a story about how when he was a young man, he got really obsessed with Joseph Campbell. And he, he went all the way into, you know, writing on his books. Uh, he yeah. ended up working for the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Um, yeah. And what yeah. he told me, what he told me was that he said that he sort of fell into Joseph Campbell's um, mind and then sort of spent about a decade trapped there, just sort of <laughs> obsessing over this one thinker. Um, and, and then later in life kind of came out of it and, and discovered that there was more to the world than Joseph Campbell. Um, you know, I, I may be exaggerating a little bit here, but this is what he told me. Um, and it strikes me that this is similar to the message that you've been conveying throughout in more or less subtle ways, which is that it's important to not get too fixated on, on Gerard, um, despite his, his greatness. Um, and, you know, I do think the fact that he is achieving a resurgence today is a testament to the the power of his ideas. Not only that they were prescient for the time, but that okay. they're they that there's much more to be mined and explored in terms of their relevance and application. Uh, and, and some air go even as far as to claim that he might be uh, regarded as one of the the highest theorists uh, of our century. Uh, you know probably neither of us will be alive to, to see whether that is the case. Um, Not this century, no. <laughs> yes, yes. You have a better chance than I do, yeah. Um, oh, by the way, I wanted to say, with regard to that interview, the CBC interview I referenced earlier, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I agree with you that the editing on that was terrible. I mean, they were they were just like cutting them off all the time. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I do a long-form podcast. We're, we're about, we're running up close to 90 minutes here. I like yeah. to let people speak at length. And I don't know why you would you would go through the the trouble of interviewing someone like Gerard, and then just sort of slice everything he says into these little snippets. And I guess maybe that was the model for radio back then. But um, yeah, anyway, I found that atrocious. Um, so back to my back to my point. Sorry, that was a, a, a little bit of a side tangent. Uh, do you think that there is this this you know I know it's hard for me to ask this as as the editor. Of contagion, but do do you view? Uh, do you think there is this danger of getting sort of too trapped in Gerardian thought? Are are there people that are kind of falling for this? Um, is there something you know that we should be looking at beyond Gerard? Are there critiques of Gerard that are being mounted that we we might begin to consider uh, in this sort of you know again renaissance that he that he is uh, enjoying uh, posthumously? Um, how do you think about uh, this question of sort of getting trapped in, in one thinker's frame? Yeah, well, I, I, um, people who read Gerard even religiously are not going to show up at the airport, so don't worry. <laughs> asking for money. Mm. So if you take somebody like, you, you mentioned Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel is a nice man. I think what he saw in Gerard was a fellow contrarian. And and maybe if you listen to Peter talk about himself as a contrarian, there's a certain element of um, not exaggeration, but and not quite self-mockery either. But he uses Gerard. He really uses Gerard. So in that book that based on his lectures at uh, Stanford, you know, he says, for example, God, don't don't open another restaurant. <laughs> right. You know, that's just a waste of time. So um, it's uh, Gerard's ideas are there for use. So if there's a trap, it's not a trap exactly, because what, what Gerard, um, 
I, I wrote a recommendation for him. Uh, it nominated him for uh, lifetime achievement for MLA, and of course they they made him. And he, in his acceptance speech at uh, in uh, San Francisco, he said he's talking to the at MLA. And so these are the humanists. These are people who teach literature. He says you got the gold. You know you got this important stuff. So what Gerard is always turning to is the great writers. He says that the great writers have all these insights. And when you start out with Gerard, you find that's true. The thing, the work of literature, for example, where I am, that you read so carefully, Gerard's ideas just open it up. So it's not a trap, but people are coming to it at different stages. So lots of times I get articles that will just say, uh, a Gerardian reading of another work of literature. And there's a point where we uh, won't want to do so much of that because it's just another reading of literature. And then you want to ask the question, what follows from the fact that that's so? What follows from the fact that Gerard, you know, um, is able to uh, point you to greater and greater insights, like Sophocles, his version of Sophocles is different from anybody else, and certainly the classicist, when he says that uh, Sophocles is hesitant to confirm without question the guilt of Oedipus and so on. So there are elements of the play that uh, hedge, hedge its bets that perhaps Oedipus is not guilty and so on as a way of uh, Sophocles wondering about the world that he lives in, the connection between theater and, and uh, cults and religion. So um, I think it'll take care of itself really. And uh, despite having committed the last half of my life to <laughs> making certain that Gerard gets a read, uh, the more likely circumstance for any author is they won't get read enough. <laughs> and that's the thing I, I, I really worry about, that uh, not being read enough. So there are lots of people working on Gerard. For example, there's a whole, a whole branch that's interested in positive reciprocity. So if you go back to it, it's in one of our books, Mimesis uh, 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 and Science, uh, two great uh, science, uh, uh, basically working in uh, neuroscience. Uh, Andrew Meltzoff, University of Washington, he works with little children. And uh, he is really important. He put together this with another uh, scholar, an anthology, a collection of uh, new work on imitation. That what had happened is imitation as a research subject had fallen out of science. And they were bringing it back. And he's a powerful figure, um, funny man to an interesting man. And the other man who's also a person who's also in uh, the book is Vittorio Galese, who uh, was a co-discoverer of mirror neurons. Mm. And so, uh, you know, by itself, and they, they love being with Gerard. I mean, uh, Galese told me, this is one of the one of the greatest experiences of my life to be, you know, here working with uh, Gerard and so on on this, this research project, which, which became the book. So um, I know that thing about uh, Campbell, Joseph Campbell, and I know, you know, people go into the room and they can't get out of the room. And uh, I mean, as long as you keep discovering new things, maybe that's, I want to say that's your limit, but that's the, the level at which you're effective. You show again and again, and, and certainly that's what I was doing until I hit uh, being an editor, because I was showing that, that the one of the best ways to read Joyce and Ibsen and uh, Virginia Woolf, an unlikely couple in any other, uh, an unlikely trio in any other version, except maybe just calling the modernists and leaving it at that, is that you could get a whole lot closer to what they were really doing ahead of the so-called specialists in Joyce and Ibsen and Wolf by uh, by using Gerard.
So I think I think it'll work out okay. Um, the people who want to keep reading Girard will keep doing that and learning things. And maybe it's just at the level of classroom now, you know, that finally the publishing world, which is also mimetic, they'll get mm. tired of saying Girard's name. But if if teachers are are opening the Ibsen text, you know, or Virginia Woolf in class, and people go, ooh, like that, that's good. Yeah. Well, definitely. And uh it's interesting that you have those uh that that you draw that interesting tri tri, tri part there with uh with mm -hmm. Wolf Wolf and Ibsen and uh, Joyce. Um all right. Uh William Johnson, thank you so much for joining the show today. Uh we really appreciate your uh your insights and experience and conversation. Uh, last thing before I let you go, uh what is next for for the journal? What is next for you in terms of continuing this this project of disseminating the ideas of Rene Girard? Uh, well, the journal is uh uh getting better known through a distribution called Project Muse from Hopkins. So it's in all libraries in the world now, and it's in the web of science. And so it's cataloged there and uh, that helps European contributors to get credit. Uh, otherwise their departments in Europe won't credit a publication. Now they do. It's also going through another. So it's doing good and it's getting wider and wider circulation. And the stuff I get as, as a submission is really interesting stuff. The book series continues. And we've got some uh, really, and we've got Jean-Pierre Dupuis' book on uh, on really what it amounts to. It. What do you do about crisis and so on? He's a kind of fellow theorist of Girard, uh, worth a whole world in himself. And me, I've got a sabbatical in the spring, so I'm going to write a book on Joseph Conrad and Gina Wanachebe and an Irish writer, Dermot Bolger, and talk about world literature and mimetic insights. So, so I'm doing good. <laughs> It's it's uh, things seem seem to be going very well, and I hope well, your project goes well too. It's good to see you. That's good to see you as well, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to hearing about that book. Um, it's it's always uh, it's always fun to see like the the many ways in which you can continue to apply these ideas in uh, in different oh, domains. Yeah. Yeah. You know that was yeah. that was yeah. one of the key insights, even inside of your class. I, I think I was I was attempting you know in my own uh, very amateurish way to. To, to apply a sort of Girardian reading to uh, to the works that we are working on. And I don't know if that was intended by on your part, but um, I, I it was it was interesting to me to see how much opportunity was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You as well.